Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 22nd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. The January 6th committee subpoenas Trump. Over 150 are killed in two days of Sudan violence. About 50 are killed as protesters demand civilian rule in Chad. Ukraine and Russia blame each other for trying to blow up a huge dam. Steve Bannon is sentenced to four months in prison for snubbing the January 6th committee. The Supreme Court won't hear an attempt to block Biden's student loan relief. Lindsey Graham is ordered to testify in a Georgia election probe. Pfizer eyes quadrupling the price of COVID shots. Pakistan's most popular political figure is barred from office. And Colombia's coca crops reportedly grew to historic levels. In our top story, the January 6th committee subpoenas Trump. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Wire, CNN, Washington Examiner, CNBC, and Guardian. The U.S. House January 6th committee on Friday subpoenaed former President Trump, alleging he personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. The subpoena demands Trump provide documents by November 4th and appear under oath either in person or virtually for one or more days of deposition testimony beginning on or about November 14th. There is the possibility Trump fights the subpoena legally, though committee co-chairs Representatives Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, and Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, argue they have the precedent of multiple former presidents both testifying before and providing documents to congressional committees. The specific documents being requested include communications records between Trump and his allies, including Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, and Michael Flynn. The subpoena comes on the same day Bannon was sentenced to prison for contempt of Congress. Should Trump defy his order, it's unknown whether the Department of Justice would press charges. The time frame of potential legal battles is important, as a new Congress will be elected in November And if the House becomes majority Republican in January, the January 6th committee could very well be disbanded. Okay, those were the facts. And on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Here's the first narrative spin that we have, the pro-Trump narrative coming from Fox News. This unethical committee will continue to backfire on Democrats as the November midterms approach. With a Republican majority set to take over the House and many committee members likely to lose their seats, this political theater will likely be dissolved. Trump has little reason to be concerned whatsoever. And a Democratic narrative is coming from Huffington Post. Despite losing the 2020 election by millions of votes, Trump decided to become the first president in history not to peacefully hand over the reins of power. His traitorous actions alone justify the subpoena, and centuries of historical precedent mean he must oblige the committee's legal demand and testify before Congress. This announcement is a major step on the road to accountability. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 35% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Donald J. Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th of 2025. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Tragedy strikes in Sudan as over 150 are killed in two days of violence. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Voice of America, France 24, and Washington Post. 
At least 150 people, including children, have been killed in two days of some of the worst fighting in recent months regarding land disputes in Sudan's southern Blue Nile state. The fighting has been centered around the Wad al-Mahi area near Rosaries, about 500 kilometers south of the capital, Khartoum. The clashes sparked demonstrations on Thursday in the Blue Nile state capital, Damazin, with some calling for the state governor to be fired. The fighting in Sudan's contested Blue Nile state broke out last week after reported arguments over land disputes between the Hausa population and rival groups. Clashes between the Hausa and other groups began in July with some 149 dead and 124 wounded documented up through this month, according to UN reporting. The UN said that the Jabalawin tribe, who are on the side of the group that rivals the Hausa, expelled the Hausa from an area that has been inaccessible to humanitarian agencies. Sudan has been beset by long-running ethnic conflicts, especially in overlooked southern and western regions. The situation has also been complicated by the political situation in Khartoum following a military coup last October. Scott, thank you for the facts. And there are two spins that have emerged. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from all Africa. The current violence in the Sudanese South is a product of seditious acts by rival tribes. The government and military will have to work quickly to disarm these tribal militias. Law and order must be restored in these areas. And the IE Network brings us the establishment critical narrative. The conflict in the Blue Nile is a product of government incompetence, political division, and xenophobia. The Sudanese military, which is currently ruling the country, has continually fanned the flames of ethnic conflict in the region for its interests. Khartoum's military-run central government is to blame. You know it's a bad situation when you don't even know who it is that isn't coming to help you that should be. That's so fractured. Mm, Both frustrating and scary. Turning our attention to Chad, where dozens have been killed as protesters demand civilian rule. And here are the facts as agreed upon by People's Gazette, Semaphore, DW, Reuters, Guardian, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, around 50 people were killed and nearly 300 injured in Chad's capital city of N'Djamena, among other cities, after security forces cracked down on protesters calling for a return to elections. The Central African nation's political crisis began after President Idris Deby died in April 2021, with his son, Mohamed Deby, becoming transitional president. After originally promising an election within 18 months, on October 1st, Mohamed pushed the election date back another two years. During Idris Deby's 30-year reign, which began after a coup in 1990, he cracked down on political opposition and human rights and oversaw a struggling national economy. With Thursday's protest crackdown appearing to be the most violent since Mohammed took power last year, the government declared a state of emergency and curfew. It also banned the activities of the civil society coalition known as Wakit Tama. Security forces have cracked down on several protests denouncing the military takeover and former colonizer France's backing of the transitional government. In May, forces used tear gas and water cannons to disperse protests when French-associated businesses were destroyed in the violence. Mohamed Deby has appointed a unity government headed by Prime Minister Saleh Kebzabo, though analysts worry violent protests and military responses could worsen. The headquarters of Kebzabo's UNDR party was attacked by demonstrators and partially burned down. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Breitbart brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Despite the current turbulence, Mohamed Deby is more accepting of both domestic political opponents and foreign rivals than his father was. 
Though still a strong man, he is a necessary ally in the fight against jihadism and a politically stable choice for dialogue between the regime and the opposition. And an establishment critical narrative is being provided by Telereport. Mohammed Debbie is a violent authoritarian like his father, and the majority of people and rebel groups are aligned in opposition to him. He broke his promise to hold elections by now, which proves he will continue to attack, imprison, and suppress his way toward an indefinite rule. His rule is not good for the democratic future of Chad. And now our daily roundup of the fighting in Ukraine as we reach the 240th day of the fighting with conflicting reports of attacks on Kherson Dam and four killed in a Ukrainian ferry crossing site. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, TASS, and the New York Post. In widely reported comments made on Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky alleged that Russian forces have mined the Kohovka Hydroelectric Power Plant, or KHPP, in the southern Kherson region. The leader claimed without evidence that opposition forces are preparing a false flag terror attack. Ukraine's president said Russia is consciously laying the groundwork for a large-scale disaster in Ukraine's south. We have information that Russian terrorists have mined the dam and the units of the KHPP. Explosions in the dam, which is believed to hold 18 million cubic meters of water, could cause severe flooding and disrupt water supplies in Russian-occupied regions, including Crimea. Meanwhile, Vladimir Leontiev, a Russian-appointed official in the surrounding Novaya Kohovka district, alleged that Ukrainian forces launched multiple rocket strikes on the KHPP on Thursday. Reports of the attack couldn't be independently confirmed. The claims were made as Russian officials and forces began evacuating residents of Kherson in anticipation of a Ukrainian counteroffensive and fears of possible flooding in the region. On Friday, a ferry crossing taking residents of Kherson deeper into Russian-controlled territories was attacked by Ukrainian rockets. The strike caused the deaths of four civilians, including two journalists, and injured 10 others, according to Russian media. Ukrainian media have acknowledged the attack. Elsewhere, Russian attacks were reported in the regions of Sumy, Zaporizhia, and Kharkiv, where six people were reported injured. Back in Russia, a court on Thursday ordered the arrest of Marina Osyanakova, the TV journalist who flashed a sign saying the Kremlin was lying about the war. Earlier this week, her lawyer said she had escaped house arrest and fled the country. Scott, three spins have emerged from this story, and we begin with an anti-Russian narrative, and it's courtesy of New York Post. Russia is undoubtedly preparing to launch a false flag attack on the KHPP in order to cover its soldiers' retreat and delay Ukrainian advances across the Dnipro River. TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. The KHPP is strategically important to Russia. Moscow's forces would not damage it. Ukraine, on the other hand, aims to destroy the dam in order to inflict a man-made catastrophe in the recently annexed region. And there is a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of Kherson by December 27th, 2022. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, imagine not only is the power plant that's powering your town get destroyed, you have no power, but you potentially then are in a flood from the water coming out of the thing. Yeah, at least it's a hydroelectric power plant as opposed to that nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. That's a good point. <laughs> Could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> In our next story, we focus on the January 6th committee as Bannon has been sentenced to four months in prison. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, Timcast, NBC, Daily Wire, NPR Online News, and Fox News. Washington, D.C. federal judge Carl Nichols on Friday sentenced former Trump advisor Steve Bannon 
to four months in prison following his conviction of contempt of Congress after refusing to testify before the House January 6th committee. Referring to Bannon's claim of immunity due to working for then-President Trump, Judge Nichols said, quote, Some of the information sought by the subpoena is information under which no conceivable claim of executive privilege could have been made. Along the federal prison sentence, Bannon must pay a $6.5 million fine. Oh, Bannon must pay a $6,500 fine. Oh, that's much better. I, I'll cover yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> Though the court said it would suspend his sentence until the appeals process is through if he files an appeal in a timely manner. Prosecutors had sought a six-month sentence and a $200,000 fine, citing, quote, a total disregard for government processes and the law. Bannon was hoping for probation. Earlier this year, the Department of Justice decided not to indict former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and his deputy Dan Scavino, saying they both provided some cooperation to congressional investigators. Former Trump aide advisor Peter Navarro, however, is likely headed to trial in November, also on contempt charges. After the hearing, Bannon told the press, quote, I respect the judge. The sentence he came down with today is his decision but predicted that his political rivals would be voted out in the upcoming November midterm elections. All right, believe it or not, we have some heavily politicized narratives on this story. We have a Democratic narrative from Huffington Post. Bannon's claim of executive privilege was baseless from the start, as he wasn't even working at the White House leading up to or during January 6th. As a private citizen, he worked to push the stolen election lie, and as Judge Nichols said, he continued to ignore the committee, even after Trump withdrew his claim of privilege. And there is a pro-Trump narrative being provided by The Federalist. This trial, reminiscent of Attorney General Eric Holder's contempt charge a decade ago, is nothing more than a political stunt and abuse of power. The only difference today is that back when Democrat Holder was accused of contempt of Congress, he was never sentenced to prison. The Biden administration is prosecuting its rivals at every opportunity, no matter how weak their case. But with November fast approaching, it will soon reap what it sows. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say that there's a 50% chance that 19 or more people will be charged by the U.S. Department of Justice with seditious conspiracy in connection with the January 6th Capitol riots. To some people, that would be, you know, life-altering, life-ending. To some people, you wouldn't even notice it. I think they should make these fines based on how your, your net worth or something. You know, you should be a percentage of, of your income or something like that. Because for some right. people, a $100 parking ticket is like game over. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's it throws their it, whole year off. Yeah. And for some people, a million-dollar fine is nothing. So if the IRS knows exactly how much money we all have. Let's, let's figure that out. That would be interesting. The Supreme Court won't hear an attempt to block student loan relief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by SCOTUS blog, The New York Times, The Washington Times, and Town Hall. On Thursday, the Supreme Court refused to hear a Wisconsin taxpayers group's attempt to block Biden's student loan forgiveness program while litigation against the program proceeds in a lower court. Justice Amy Coney Barrett issued the rejection. Biden's plan cancels $10,000 in debt for those earning less than $125,000 per year or $250,000 as a household. Those who received Pell Grants can have up to $20,000 forgiven. The plan is estimated to cost $379 to $400 billion over the life of the program. The Wisconsin-based Brown County Taxpayers Association sued to stop Biden from moving forward with his plan because it would lead to, quote, a gargantuan increase in the national debt, end quote and allegedly exceeds the president's spending authority. A U.S. district judge threw out the case based on a lack of standing by the plaintiffs, and an appeals court refused to hear the case before it was put before the Supreme Court. 
Not long after the Supreme Court ruling, a federal judge ruled that a group of six Republican-led states, Missouri, Nebraska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, lacked standing to make a similar legal challenge to the student debt relief program. The states intend to appeal. In the second case, the Biden administration argued that the education secretary has authority under the 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students, or HEROES Act, to waive or modify federal student loans during war or national emergency. Thank you for the facts of that story, Scott. Alternet provides us with the first spin, and it is a democratic narrative. There are so many problems with these lawsuits, starting with the fact that under the HEROES Act, there's no denying the Biden administration has the authority to enact this plan. Then there's the claim that having to pay taxes is the harmful reason for filing suit, which historically has been rejected by the courts. Republicans are clogging up the courts to stop Biden from celebrating a victory. And we have a Republican narrative from Town Hall. One failed attempt to block Biden's student loan handout is far from the end of this story. There are several other legal challenges to this program, and eventually one of them will land at the Supreme Court, where the 6-3 to three conservative majority will have its say. American taxpayers shouldn't have to bail out student borrowers. And there is a nerd narrative. It says there's a 90% chance that the U.S. government will forgive $10,000 of federal student loans per person before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. As usual, in debates like this, political debates, one side says the rules say that this should be a certain thing, and the other side says, hey, we should change those rules. And that's kind of how all these things are. There's always, yeah, there are always changes to the rules, it seems like. An appeals court orders Lindsey Graham to testify in a Georgia probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CBS, New York Post, and Fox News. On Thursday, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals unanimously ruled that Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, must testify before a Georgia special grand jury as part of an investigation into possible interference in certifying Biden's victory in the 2020 election. Fulton County DA Fannie Willis has been investigating alleged election tampering since January 2021 after a recording of a phone call between then-President Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger surfaced, during which Trump reportedly asked him to find votes to turn the election results in his favor. Graham was subpoenaed in July over reports of phone calls he made to Raffensperger, who characterized the calls as an attempt to get legally cast votes thrown out. Graham called that accusation ridiculous. Graham has cited the speech or debate clause of the Constitution, which protects Congress members from legal prosecution over statements made during legislative business. The appeals court rejected Graham's argument, ruling he can't be questioned about professional communications related to legislative duties. But all other personal conversations are open to inquiry, including the calls to Raffensperger. Although they didn't comment after the ruling, Graham's lawyers previously said they would appeal to the Supreme Court if they lost. We've got a pro-Trump narrative on this story from The Federalist. Graham is being unfairly targeted by Willis's witch hunt. The Founding Fathers included the speech or debate clause in the Constitution to protect the integrity, something Willis lacks, of the legislative process. And the appeals court has wrongly dismissed this. Assuming Graham appeals, Willis's grand jury will be exposed for what it really is, the self-promotional tool she's been using to score political points. And there's a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. Despite having no legal leg to stand on, Graham has fought with every available resource to avoid testifying, a desperate effort that has gotten him nowhere. The DA's office has assured him he isn't the target of this investigation, and if he has nothing to hide, 
Why is he putting up such a fight? Pharma giant Pfizer eyes price hikes for COVID shots. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo Finance, MarketWatch, Reuters, and CNN. On Thursday, Pfizer executive Angela Lucan announced that the company would likely quadruple the price of its COVID vaccine to between $110 and $130 per dose after the U.S. government's emergency purchase program ends. Lucan predicted that the vaccine would still be available at no cost to those with private or government-paid insurance. The cost to those with no health insurance is unclear. The transition to a commercial market is expected next year. The price hike could add between $2.5 billion and $3 billion to Pfizer's revenue and could set a precedent for competitors such as Novavax and Moderna to follow suit. An analysis from NGO Kaiser Family Foundation suggested that while those with health insurance will likely not see direct out-of-pocket expenses for future COVID jabs, the cost may be integrated into premiums. Wall Street analysts lauded the move for its ability to boost revenue, and Pfizer stocks rose more than 4.5% as of Friday morning. Pfizer's price hike is also seen as a market reaction to a slowing vaccine demand. COVID vaccine demand has declined, with two-thirds of Americans reportedly not planning to get a jab soon, in part due to messaging that the pandemic phase is over. This comes as public health officials are concerned about a new round of COVID Omicron subvariants dubbed Scrabble, with letter designations such as BQ.1 and XBB. The new variants could drive a winter surge of infections in the U.S. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We do have three spins that have emerged, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Common Dreams. COVID vaccines should be a public good for the entire world, yet they've been put shamelessly into the hands of Big Pharma. Now Pfizer will leverage insurance to fleece a 10,000x windfall from the American public while vaccine equity goes unaddressed in vulnerable populations. This is obscene robbery in broad daylight. And the U.S. government must not allow Pfizer to hold the world for ransom in a global pandemic. And Fierce Pharma brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Pfizer skyrocketed to pandemic superstar status with its COVID vaccine, which reduced severe illness and death for millions in the U.S. and around the world. The market responds to natural supply and demand, and eventually its COVID vaccine and antiviral pill Paxlovid will see a demand drop and be institutionalized in the medical marketplace. Pfizer is now on to exciting innovations to treat cancer and inflammation, which will be a boon for global health. According to a nerd narrative for this story, there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 18 named variants of SARS-CoV-2 in its first 10 years, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Yeah, you don't really think about the expense of this vaccine. We're all, and anyone who wants to can get it free for now. But yeah, seeing that uh, that price point, 130 bucks, it's kind of, it's a lot. But then again, I guess it's a bargain. I don't know. It depends on how well, you look at it. Exactly. Depends on how much you like Scrabble. I like Scrabble. <laughs> Sign me up. Turning our attention to Pakistan, an election commission bars Khan from office. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Reuters, BBC News, CNN, and Al Jazeera. On Friday, Pakistan's Elections Commission ruled that former Prime Minister Imran Khan is disqualified from holding public office for five years, as he was accused of unlawfully selling state gifts and concealing the profits. The ruling is expected to deepen political unrest. The former Prime Minister is said to have misused his premiership between 2018 and 2022 by buying and selling gifts given to the state during official visits abroad. The gifts, allegedly worth more than 140 million rupees or $635,000, 
included watches given by a royal family and allegedly later sold in Dubai. This means that Khan must cease to be a member of the National Assembly of Pakistan, and his seat is now vacant. The decision, unanimously delivered by a five-member commission, is a devastating setback for the popular Khan. Leaders of Khan's party, Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI, claim the Election Commission of Pakistan, or ECP, was biased in its decision and planned to escalate the matter to the Islamabad High Court. Disqualifying Khan adds fuel to the political and economic turmoil in the country. Earlier this year, when Khan was removed from power, his supporters flooded the streets in protest. Pakistani legal experts suggested that troubles for the PTI chief will continue in the coming days. The ECP, or Pakistan's Election Commission, in the verdict has sent the case to a trial court. However, if Khan is found guilty of corrupt practices in court, he could be imprisoned for a maximum of three years. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Friday Times gives us an establishment critical narrative. Pakistan's Election Commission is demonstrating its overreach with this ruling. This decision is a slap in the face to 220 million Khan supporters, and the widespread street protests show it. The PTI will not stand for this and is already preparing its legal appeal to challenge the ruling in court. A democratic system in Pakistan without Imran Khan will not happen. And Don gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Imran Khan and his entire party are fraudsters, and the Sharif-led government will continue to show Khan's true face to the people. During his time in office, he did nothing but attack the army and create divisions. Khan's actions have been appalling, and groups protecting him should be tried for treason. How much did you buy that watch for, Scott? Uh, I mean, in rupees or dollars? <laughs> <laughs> Our final story, the U.N. reports that Colombia's coca crops grew to historic levels. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, DW, Al Jazeera, BBC News, and France 24. According to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, or UNODC, the potential production of coca in Colombia and the area in the country sown with coca, the base ingredient used to produce cocaine, have grown to their highest levels in two decades. The UNODC said on Thursday that around 204,000 hectares of the leaf were planted in 2021, while rising cultivation of coca saw cocaine production increase to 1,400 tons, up from just over 1,000 tons the year before. The agency added that, as well as threatening the nation's cultural potential, the scale of cultivation could pose a threat to biodiversity. The regional director for UNODC, Andean and Southern Cone, urged Bogota to commit to greater social spending and increased security for communities attempting to move away from growing coca towards economies based on legal crop production. The UN report specifies that coca crops are flourishing in regions with close proximity to national borders or routes via the sea, including the North Santander region in the northeast of the country and two departments in the southwest where Colombia borders Ecuador. Armed criminal gangs, drug traffickers, and drug producers reportedly collaborate in these areas. Colombian Justice Minister Nestor Osuna has described the report's findings as clear evidence of the failure of the war on drugs. The South American nation's new leftist president, Gustavo Petro, has signaled an intention to move away from current policy towards a more holistic approach. Petro has also suggested an amnesty for drug traffickers who voluntarily surrender themselves and give up their criminal careers. According to Osuna, new policies will not yet include the legalization of cocaine, and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken expressed support for Petro's approach. Scott, thank you for the facts. We do have three spins that have emerged, beginning with a left narrative coming from The Economist. 
Biden has already shown that he doesn't support the archaic and ineffective war on drugs approach by pardoning roughly 6,000 Americans convicted of simple possession of marijuana. Rather than wasting even more taxpayer dollars on this nonsensical policy, $10 billion was wasted in Colombia alone between 2000 and 2020. Biden should support Petro's more progressive approach. And unheard brings us the right narrative spin. So-called progressively expanding cocaine's availability would put citizens at risk and fail to put Colombian drug lords out of business. The legalization lobby is wrong. 200,000 Americans were struggling with horrific cocaine addiction before it became illegal in the U.S. in the early 1900s. Playing with the thought of legalizing this dangerous drug would be a nightmare for the Colombian people and beyond. And a nerd narrative says that there's a 57% chance that the sentencing disparity between the amount in possession of cocaine base versus cocaine required to receive a drug trafficking penalty will be ended by 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.